We finished our study in the book of Acts last week, noting that Luke left Paul a prisoner in Rome. And since history informs us that Paul was executed in Rome, the common assumption is that he was killed after being chained to a guard for two years. Tradition, a close examination of his epistles, and other historical evidence, however, make it clear that Paul's life did not end during his first Roman imprisonment. But then again, neither did his life end during his second imprisonment, even though Nero did take his head that time. You know, executing Paul simply set him free from this life to enter into eternal life. And Paul knew without a shadow of a doubt that he would. We ended Acts by turning to 1 Corinthians 15, where we learned the reason Paul could face death with confidence. And where we learn that we too have that same guarantee of life after death because Christ arose from the grave. In fact, there is a lot to learn in 1 Corinthians. So, guess what book we're studying next? You know, while studying the record of his missionary journeys in Acts, we learned of Paul's ministry in Corinth. And this morning, we begin a look at his first letter to the Corinthians. So, who were they? And where in the world is Corinth? Well, we begin by noting that Corinth is west of Athens in Greece, located on a narrow piece of land that made it the Panama of the Mediterranean. Today, there's actually a canal running through the narrowest part of the isthmus near Corinth. But in Paul's day, small ships were dragged on rollers over the five miles from harbor to harbor, and cargo from larger ships was unloaded and carried over land to ships waiting on the other side. Its location, therefore, made Corinth the wealthy commercial center of Greece. But in spite of its wealth, or perhaps because of it, Corinth was a city that was morally bankrupt. It was known throughout the Roman Empire for its immorality. The Greeks even coined a word that translates to act like a Corinthian, which meant to be sexually immoral. Every Greek knew what a Corinthian girl was, and a Corinthian on stage was almost always portrayed as a drunkard. Even their worship was immoral. The temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, housed a thousand prostitutes. It was here that the Apostle Paul established a church on his second missionary journey around 50 A.D. He spent 18 months in Corinth, working with this new congregation, and then continued on his journeys. Problems, however, soon developed. 
And it became necessary for him to write this letter while in Ephesus on his third missionary journey around 55 A.D. Now, unlike Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which deals with lofty theological themes, 1 Corinthians is, for the most part, a very practical, problem-oriented letter. He speaks to specific matters that were causing problems in the church. And he offers concrete solutions to those problems. And as we'll see, they had plenty of problems. Yet, in spite of their many problems, Paul begins on a positive note. Paul Called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gifts, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, some have suggested that Paul was just being polite here, or deliberately trying to soften them up before raking them over the coals. But I don't think so. You know, if you look closely, you'll see that the Corinthians themselves aren't really the focus of what Paul has to say in his greeting. Did you notice how many times he referred to Christ? Christ Jesus. Or the Lord Jesus Christ. In nine verses... He mentions our Lord nine times. Now, Paul wasn't praising the Corinthians nearly as much as he was praising the Lord. Paul wasn't happy about what was going on in Corinth, but he was genuinely thankful for what Christ had done for them and for himself. Notice how he begins verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, we're not really 100% sure who Sosthenes is, but we know who Paul is. And Paul is recognizing that he is who he is because of Christ. That he had been called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't seek it out. He was called according to the will of God. Now, that's a good place to start because his apostleship was apparently under attack. As his detractors no doubt pointed out, he wasn't one of the original twelve. 
Christ had sought him out and had personally called him to be an apostle. And since he was indeed an apostle, they had better listen to what he had to say. And he's going to say some pretty hard things to them. But first, he wants to remind them of their position in Christ, as well as what Christ had done for them. But first, he wants to remind them of their position in Christ again and what Christ has done for them in spite of their problems. They had three things going for them. Christ had sanctified them. Christ had enriched them. And Christ was coming back for them. We begin by noting that Christ had sanctified them. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addressed the letter to the church of God, which is in Corinth, making it clear from the start that the church in Corinth was God's church. It wasn't the Corinthians' church. It was God's church. It wasn't their church. It was His church. Perhaps they had referred to it as their church so often that they actually started believing it. And as such, they thought they should run it. So Paul begins with a subtle reminder that they have been made part of God's church. That God is in charge, not the congregation, not the preacher, not the elders, but God. And it is therefore His will for the church, not theirs, that should always be sought and followed. He then addresses the individuals who make up the church to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, to be sanctified simply means to be set apart. God had set apart the believers in Corinth as His own possession. Not only did the church as a whole belong to God, each individual member of the church belonged to Him as well. And that obviously has a bearing on behavior. If you see yourself as being set apart for God through a relationship with His Son, you are going to be different from the world. You belong to Him. Paul will point out in the sixth chapter, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Your ransom has been paid, and you now belong to God. You've been set apart for Himself. You have been sanctified. You have been made into a saint. Now, that might shock you especially with all the talk about saints these days. But the word sanctified and saint both come from the same root word in the Greek. 
Christ had made the Corinthians into saints. And recognizing that fact should have affected their behavior. Now, having said that, we must be careful to note which came first. You don't become a saint by exemplary behavior. You become a saint by being set apart by God. Sainthood isn't something you achieve. Becoming a saint isn't something I do. It's something God does to me when I accept His offer of forgiveness. And again, contrary to common perceptions, saints are not rare. Paul says we are saints with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that they had been made a part of a great body of believers. They were not alone. They had brothers and sisters around the world. And that's good for us to remember as well. Now, sometimes we began feeling that we and those who are like us in doctrinal detail and practice are the only ones we're related to. Paul says we are fellow saints with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. We may not agree with everything our brothers and sisters do or believe or don't do or don't believe, but if they call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are family. Thankfully, God can sanctify even those with imperfect doctrine. He sanctified the Corinthians, and He sanctified us. And as a result of His calling them to Himself, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they had received grace and could enjoy Christ's peace. They were recipients of Christ's unmerited favor and could therefore enjoy the benefits of their new relationship with Him. Now, he didn't stop with saving them and sanctifying them. Christ had enriched them. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Christ had made them spiritually wealthy. He didn't just set them apart and join them to His worldwide body. He enriched them. The word used is a word from which we get the word plutocrat. A wealthy person of great influence. Christ had made them wealthy beyond measure. They had been given more than saving grace. They had been given enriching grace. He had given them individually and corporately special gifts that enriched them. As a congregation, Paul noted they had been especially blessed with gifts of speech and knowledge. They had been given special insight into God's will and were given the ability to communicate it effectively. Now, as we'll see, they didn't do it 
perfectly. They got caught up in the excitement of being able to speak in foreign tongues. But God still used their gift to confirm their testimony concerning Jesus. And they were not lacking in any of the spiritual gifts. When the Holy Spirit came into the lives of the believers in Corinth, He had seen to it that all the gifts were distributed in the body. They had been given everything they needed to function as the body of Christ. So what had they been given? What are the gifts given to members of the church for the good of the church? Well, there are several lists in the New Testament, and we'll look at one when we come to the 12th chapter. But the lists differ and therefore seem to be representative rather than all-inclusive. You know, most who try to compile a catalog of, of the gifts generally come up with 19 or 20 individual gifts in three general categories. There are the equipping gifts that enable some to lead the church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There are sign gifts that confirmed the message when first proclaimed, such as miracles, healings, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And there are a host of working gifts needed for the day-to-day functioning of the body, such as wisdom, knowledge, faith, helps, service, administration, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy, and discernment. Now, Scripture makes it clear that every Christian has been given at least one gift for the common good to be exercised in the body. And every body has all the gifts it needs to do the job Christ has called it to do. Paul stressed that the church in Corinth was not lacking in any gift, but as we'll see, they weren't exercising all the gifts. Some gifts seemed to be more important than others. And a sense of rivalry developed in the church with regard to the more dramatic gifts. And Paul's going to deal with that in chapters 13 and 14. But for now, let me simply say that no gift is more important than any other. And we must all be diligent to discover and develop the gifts God has given us if we are to be effective members of the body of Christ. The Corinthians weren't lacking in any of the gifts, and neither are we. The problem is that not all are exercising their gifts. But let's keep it positive for now. Paul does. The Corinthians had been sanctified by Christ and enriched by Christ, and Christ was coming back for them. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm not sure that Paul is saying that the Corinthian Christians were eagerly awaiting the return of Christ so much as he was reminding them that the gifts were a pledge of their future inheritance in Christ. 
In Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, he writes that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's possession when Christ comes again. That the Holy Spirit in our life should remind us that we belong to Christ and that He's coming back for us. And as Paul reminds them here, Christ would confirm them to the end. He would stay with them, keep working through them until He comes again. That's a great assurance to have. And even more than that, Paul reminds them if they remain in Christ, they will be judged blameless when He returns. Wow! You know, God is faithful. He has done, is doing, and will do everything necessary to keep His children in a good relationship with Him and with each other. If they will but remember they have been called into fellowship with His Son. And that is precisely where the Corinthians were failing. That was the heart of all their problems. They had forgotten that they had been called into fellowship with the Son. Over and over again, in this letter, Paul's going to be calling them back to a recognition of that fact and the implications of it. They were suffering divisions because they had lost sight of the lordship of Jesus. They were immoral because they had forgotten that their physical bodies were members of Christ's body. They were in lawsuits with one another because they had failed to see that Jesus was judge of the innermost motives of the heart. They were quarreling because they had forgotten that others were also members of Christ's body. And therefore, they were members of one another. All that the Apostle does to heal the hurts at Corinth is to call them back to an awareness of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to call us to this morning. Now, if we will stay in fellowship with Christ, all of our problems, differences of opinion and conflicts can be worked out. It's when we forget the one who has brought us together through fellowship with Himself, that conflicts arise in our lives and in the church. And I'm sure you've seen the, the bumper sticker, No Jesus, No Peace. No, K-N-O-W, No Jesus, No Peace. You know, to know peace in our life and in the body of Christ, all we need to do is be at peace with Christ. If we will surrender everything to Him, He will heal our hurts, He will mend our hearts, and He will make us into a body that always brings honor to the name of Christ. 
the objective of the restoration movement, a movement to which we have historical ties, has traditionally been expressed as a desire to restore the New Testament church. So when we say we want to restore the New Testament church, we are not suggesting that we want to become like the church in Corinth that we read about in the New Testament. What we are saying is that we want to remove the barriers that have evolved over time, separating Christians into a confusing array of denominations and feuding factions, and restore the ideal church as pictured in the New Testament. The kind of church Paul knew the church in Corinth could become if it would but remember it had been called into fellowship with his son. We too have been called into fellowship with the son. And he died to make that fellowship possible. You know, if you feel estranged from God or from the church or just from a brother in Christ, I invite you to come back into fellowship with the risen Son of God. And we do so, quite frankly, by surrendering our will.